Central. This is Tech Radio. All things computers, gadgets and web happening right now in Ireland. Hear us anytime on iTunes or download from techcentral.ie. Central. How are you doing? This is Dusty Rhodes and welcome to this week's Tech Radio with all the latest in tech around Ireland and across the world. Thank you for downloading from our website at techcentral.ie using your favourite podcast app on your smartphone or listening on DAB Digital Radio with RTE Radio 1 Extra. This is our show for the week ending Friday the 5th of June and it's another special show this week where we meet more industry leaders from the huge Global Tech Summit which happened in DCU last week. And also look at the future of how hospitals could look in five years' time with Andrew Murphy of Sluntia Healthcare here in Ireland, who are world leaders in the field. But first, in our last show, we met with Intel's Margaret Burgraff and Philip Noina at the Silicon Valley Global Tech Summit. We've got two more fascinating interviews from the floor of that summit for you today. A little later on, going to be talking to Elaine Coughlin of Atlantic Bridge Capital about the practicalities of growing a business. Business. But first, Niall Kitson was on the floor talking to Dr. Nora Caldi, who is the Chief Scientific Officer and the founder of a company called Neuritas. Now, Neuritas uses big data and maths and machine learning to dig deeper into our food to find out what it's made of at a molecular level and also to look at how we can use that understanding to develop healthier foods and ingredients. Amazing interview. Here it is. I have managed to uh, call her Dr. Nora Caldi, who is the founder and chief scientific officer of Neuritas, a startup that's here at the ITLG Silicon Valley Global Tech Summit uh, at DCU. So, uh, Dr. Caldi, thank you uh, very much for taking some time to, uh, to speak with us on the show. I know I've had to collar you from... Uh uh, various uh, meetings and interested uh, parties. So just tell us a little bit about the direction ag tech is going at the moment because when somebody thinks of agricultural technology they're thinking of bigger and better tractors. You know, It's a fairly unsophisticated view but thanks to the arrival of things like sensor technology and big data uh, farmers are looking at their land and their crops in a much more sophisticated manner. So could you tell us a little bit about this sort of the sea change that big data and cloud is adding to farming? Um, so before I start, I just actually want to make a point on that. And, and I think people forget that the, the strategic asset, the last century, was all about oil. Um, this century, it's not about technology or apps or oil. It's really all about food and water. Um, so any technology that's able to make food more um, better uh, in, in terms of more uh, adaptable, healthier, um, and, and water healthier, for example, cleaner, etc., um, is doing very well for the industry. So any technology that's able to do that is, is very good. Um, of course, um, the, the funny thing that I realized when I started working in the food area is that um, food and ag are, are the oldest industries on earth, and, and, and food has coexisted with us um, since, since our existence on earth. And yet we know very little about food, um, and um, the ag are using very similar methods they used centuries ago. Um, so technology has not really tapped in fully to these areas. 
And I think the main reason is that, um, uh, you know, when you're doing something the same old way, it's very, very hard to actually modify it and to introduce novel ways of thinking. And initially, uh, the, the, also the, the major problem as well is that a lot of companies or a lot of farmers um, have done this the, the old way and, and don't realize they have a problem and, and it can be done faster, cheaper, etc. But it's not, um, uh, ag- um, technology in agriculture is not about just making uh, faster tractors or better performing tractors. It's, there's much more to that. Um, and from our perspective, it's more about understanding food and understanding how food interacts with the human body. So I think something that people don't realize when they consume food is that they're consuming data. They're consuming billions and billions of molecules. And these molecules are all interacting with the body at a very different level and very different stages. And, 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 and understanding how that interaction happens and what food is really doing in your body is very, very important. And, and it's very important for many reasons, one of which is what we're doing is identifying novel uh, molecules in food that are therapeutic molecules, ones that are going to um, make people healthier um, and, and prevent and manage their diseases. Um, and there's a major problem now in society. One on three people in society suffer from chronic disease or metabolic diseases such as diabetes, cholesterol and, and blood pressure and so forth. And um, and research in the past decade has shown that food molecules and very specific food molecules are the best way to actually prevent and manage these diseases. But the real problem is that identifying these novel therapeutic molecules in food takes years and millions. It's actually not sustainable whatsoever and it can't be done. So what we're doing at Neurotas is that we're introducing technology in an area where technology is, is void. There's no technology in, in food, really. We're introducing machine learning, artificial intelligence, and data mining to look at food in a very different way. So we look at food at the molecular level, and we identify completely novel, groundbreaking, life-changing ingredients that are going to then be formulated in food and help people live healthier. For example, one of the ingredients we have is one that manages... Um, sugar, uh, blood glucose. So these molecules would be good for pre-diabetics to manage and to prevent them from getting diabetes or diabetics to to, um, to, to prevent them or, or manage their diabetes. And these ingredients are going to be formulated, for example, in cereal bars that diabetics could purchase uh, to, to enhance their health. Um, so these kind of technologies are, are new in food, but they're, they're, they're going to transform the way we view food and they're going to add so much more value to the food chain as well. So as a, a farmer, how exactly would you sell Neurotask to me? You know, I've got a, a reasonable yield coming off my farm every year. I can more or less look after myself. How do you sell the concept to me of having better ingredients? I mean, the, on the surface, it does sound like GMO crops. Oh, no, there's no GMOs here. What we're doing is just unlocking what's in food already. So there's, there's no modifications whatsoever. These molecules are embedded within food, but they're hard to reach. What we're doing is finding them and reaching out and, and, and extracting them from, from the source material. Um, so who we work with directly, we work... So there's, there's a whole... Uh, journey between the food source that comes from a farm and then the end product that reaches a consumer. Um, and that journey is full of different steps, including the food companies and, and, and changing the food source into a product, etc. 
Um, but one of the major things that um, I realized talking to companies is this um, kind of conversion ratio, or I call it conversion ratio, is how much uh, of a food source is going to be converted to an end product that a consumer is going to eat. And very, I was shocked by how little that is. I was shocked by some industries has have um, they only use about 20% of their uh, food source and, and throw away about 80% of it. Um, as some other industries would, would maintain maybe 80% and throw away 20. And I'll give you an example because of Ireland, um, an example of potatoes. You know, potatoes, people eat the potato itself, they throw away the skin, but the skin is full of nutrition uh, and that's a byproduct. So um, what what Nertas is doing is that we're, we're partnering with multinational food companies around the world to actually understand their byproduct and add value to that byproduct and find new uses for them. So what, what we discovered and what, what I discovered talking to companies is that a lot of these byproducts are actually healthy, they're, they're, um, they're healthy, they're not toxic, uh, they're edible, but in fact the problem is that these companies don't know how to use this use these ingredients, they don't have new uses for them, and they're trying to identify ways to, to, to sell it. Um, so we're partnering with these companies, identifying life-changing therapeutic molecules within their byproduct, and changing it to something that is um, going to add to that ratio, in terms of now it's no longer 80, it's 90 or 95% that they're using, and also at the same time, preventing and managing diseases through these ingredients. And so... Where does big data come into this picture? I mean, when, when you look to boil down ingredients to a specific, uh, to specific elements, what kind of sample size are we, are we looking at? You know, you're, you're not looking at 10 potatoes in the field. How much data actually goes into analyzing, um, we'll say, a potato just to find out what, it, what exactly it's made of and what else is in there that you can make use of? Yeah, so... Um Again, I think in terms of big data, um, if you look at a, um, and, and I do the comparison quite quite often where I compare Twitter, um, the number of uh, Twitter letters that have been tweeted since the existence of Twitter, and then what's in one microgram of food. And it's huge. What's in one microgram of food is about a thousand or a thousand million times or something along those lines, more than all the Twitter feeds uh, ever, ever existing on, on Earth. So um, so there's a lot of data in food, and um, by data, um, what we mean, there's, there's trillions of molecules in food, and we're focused at Neurotas on, on a specific type of molecule called protein and peptides, and every for every source material we take, which may be a sample of one gram or so from a source material like potato skin, for example, we would look at about 30 billion molecules uh, and understand how those molecules in food interact with the human body in terms of how they interact with the receptors in the human body and what they target, what they inhibit, what they activate. Um, so for each molecule, we will do the full analyses. Um, it takes a few, you know, it takes a few weeks to, to get things running and understand basically in, in terms of computational time. Um, to understand what each molecule does, but then we narrow it down to very few uh, within the 30 billion that really have a very, very important health benefit. And then we, we take the sample and extract those from the sample. 
So uh, it's, it's, it sounds like sort of a complicated process, but quite a simple one at the same time. Uh, of course, Neurotas is a, a startup. You're naturally involved in the startup ecosystem uh, in Dublin, but uh, most of your business is international. So how do you find it as sort of an Irish startup working in a, a big world where most of your clients are, are global instead of local? Um, well, I think Ireland is a great place to be. Um, I think um, it's it's worldly, it's recognised worldwide um, as a great ecosystem for novel, groundbreaking ideas. So we don't have any trouble approaching companies worldwide um, being based in Ireland. I don't see that as as a, as a problem whatsoever. It's actually it's actually the contrary. They, they they're like, oh, you're Irish. It's it's great. Uh, we've been there. Lovely people. So so I um, I, I don't see it hampering anyway uh, the growth of Neurotas um, and the, the, true, the truth is um, this um, now small Irish company Neurotas is going to transform the lives of millions of hundreds of millions of people around the world um, and, um, and the, the, where it's based is relevant because we're all computational you know we can work I can work wherever in the world it's all computational initially and then we make the ingredient through our partners so um, um, I think it's great being based in, in, in Ireland. There's a huge uh, network of um, other types of companies. Ireland is mainly uh, tech-driven. It's mainly apps and, 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 and software, pure software, etc. So we're a little different that way, uh, but difference is good. So, um, so yeah, I, I enjoy, we enjoy being in Ireland. It's, it's a great, great uh, ecosystem. Thank you, Nora. That was Dr. Caldi of Neurotas speaking to Niall Kitson at the Global Tech Summit. This is Tech Central, your weekly tech podcast from Ireland's techcentral.ie. The last person from the Global Tech Summit that Niall met with was Elaine Coughlin of Atlantic Bridge Capital, who was there to talk about her experience in helping technology companies grow. To date, Elaine has taken three technology companies public on both the NASDAQ and the London Stock Exchange. She is a fellow of the Institute of Chartered Accountants, one of Europe's top 100 women in technology, and is a board member here in Ireland at Enterprise Ireland. Now I'll ask her about the landscape for startups in Ireland, the mistakes many make in starting out, and the great unknown, China. Finally here at the ITLG uh, Silicon Valley Summit, uh, I'm speaking with Elaine Coughlin, who is a co-founder and general partner of Atlantic Bridge Capital. Uh, she is also co-founder of Summit Bridge Capital. Um, she is also a fellow of the Institute of Chartered Accountants, a qualified chartered director. She was named one of Europe's top 100 women in technology and is even on the board of Enterprise Ireland. So to say uh, Elaine has a busy CV is something of an understatement. So, uh, Elaine, thank you for joining us on the show. Thank you very much, Neil. Uh, now, what you've been talking about and what you've been having a look mm-hmm. at uh, today, um, you were speaking about the, the future and the present, if you will, of VC investment mm-hmm. and fundraising uh, in companies. So let's just have a look at the, the lie of the land in Ireland mm-hmm. at the moment. Um, Ireland is principally a country of SMEs, which means that it's pretty ripe pickings for startups. Um, so when people are looking to, uh, they have an idea for a company, they want to turn it into a, they have a good idea, they want to turn it into something tangible. But do you find that there's, because the technology makes it so easy, people are focusing maybe a bit too much on the idea and not enough on the practicalities of running a business? 
Um, I think uh, the ideas bit is uh, is probably easy. Um, we all have very good ideas. The challenge is execution, um, and the challenge is turning those ideas uh, into scalable businesses. Uh, you know that, that involve building a team, taking risk. You know, stepping off the parapet in terms of, you know, into the unknown is a is a is a lonely hard place as an entrepreneur, and having to be, you know, a, a talent magnet uh, to h- hire the right people. Uh, and then obviously secure the capital. So that's that's difficult to do. Um, uh, and so I, I think um, uh, we need to think more about what does it take to be successful rather than I have a great idea. So um, again, because Ireland is a, a nation of SMEs, but because technology is technology, mm-hmm. people can look outside Ireland to uh, develop their client base or, the, or they mm-hmm. can look inwards mm-hmm. to yeah. become you know, more or less self-sustaining. Uh, of course, it throws up the, uh, the problem of talent. Mm-hmm. And do you hire within Ireland? Do you bring people in? Or do you think too many companies are maybe waiting for the talent to arrive maybe through a Google or, or a multinational? Uh, how do you see companies reacting to that absence in the, in the jobs market? Um, I think um, it is all about building great teams and certainly uh, you know in any of the businesses we built we we were very open-minded about wherever we could get the people we got them so you know we have some businesses and they may have six or seven locations not out of choice uh, but that's just because you know they could get developers in you know Estonia or Poland they really ideally would have liked to get them in Ireland they had their main base in Ireland but where we couldn't find the skill uh, we had to do something and that meant hiring you know overseas setting up offices overseas and also attracting some of that those staff in, into into Ireland so so I don't think you can be prescriptive about where you're going to find great people. Um, I think the really, really important thing for entrepreneurs is to realize that uh, they're not going to be able to do it on their own and they, they really have to build a world-class uh, team. And some great talent in Ireland. Um, and I think you've got to supplement that with uh, uh talent in locations you know where perhaps supply is more abundant and, and that poses challenges because you could have time differences you can have language differences um, and you know cultural differences so so it isn't easy to do uh, but I would say that uh, over time certainly at the moment we have a bit of a crunch in Ireland but I would hope that the last uh, you know one of the legacies of the positive legacies of the recession is that uh, you know kids and their mums and dads as they go through school realise that engineering and science and math that these are long-term trends uh, globally that will uh, enable you know their young um, children uh, to always be in gainful empl- employment, and that uh, you know moving away perhaps from the professions of you know uh, solely thinking that you know accountancy, and banking, and uh, lawyer, legal were were where the you know big lucrative roles were that much more um, long-term sustainable um, careers in in science and technology are probably for their kids best interest so this is going to take time and meanwhile companies have to get people from wherever they can uh, just to bring the conversation around to uh, the actual reason that you're here today is looking at uh, looking at VC. P- people have a look around and they see that the companies that are the most valuable these days are the ones that don't seem to own any, a- any assets. I mean, there's Facebook, there's Uber replacing taxi operators, there's a- Airbnb replacing the hospitality industry. Uh, is the is the perception that there is a bubble accurate, or is this ju- is this just a new economy? Um, I think you. Uh 
uh, highlighted, you know, the companies you pick there are all in the consumer internet space, which is disrupting and disaggregating a lot of traditional industries, whether that's media, advertising, I'd put Facebook in, in that category to to something like an Uber. Um, and I think without doubt you're going to have category leaders in those categories that will be very successful. Just the very same as 2000 when we the dot-com bust, you had category leaders in companies like eBay and in Amazon and marketplaces, but you also had quite a lot that didn't make it. So I think some of those companies uh, ha- would justify their valuation because of the level of first mover advantage that they've got and the mar- markets that they're, they're penetrating are so big. Um, however, that's not going to be the same for, for you know number three, number four, number five, and number six of those categories. Um, so it's really, really hard to say whether there's, whether there's a bubble, uh, but I think for sure you're going to have winners and you're going to have some you're going to have quite a lot of losers. Um, I think then when you move outside of consumer internet, which is very much a phenomenon of the very large homogenous markets, be it you know China, if you look at the companies coming out of China and the US, um, we haven't tended in Europe or in Ireland to have majorly successful consumer internet companies because, number one, we don't have homogenous markets, English speaking, 250 million as they do in the US, and number two, the capital base. I mean, if you look at something like a Facebook, before it went public, they raised 1.6 billion. Uh, it'd be, you know, the only company coming close to raising that kind of capital as a private company would be something like Spotify out of Sweden. Again, consumer internet streaming of uh, music and the consumer. So, so I think on the B to C side, yes, which is the business to consumer side, valuations are challenging and, and people are concerned. It doesn't necessarily mean there'll be a massive bust, but I think there'll be some fallout, um, and you will have some real winners. Um, and then uh, on the uh, business to business side and the enterprise space that we in Atlantic Bridge focus on. We don't see those trends around, you know, bubble valuations, really. Um, We see the fundamental strong. We see strong companies, deep IP, strong engineering teams looking to build and monetize their businesses from an early stage as opposed to build first and then monetize. So the deep tech area is increasingly, we think, interesting, particularly with trends like IoT, which we were talking about here today, Internet of Things, robotics, drones, wearables, all the crossover between software and hardware. Um, and I think that trend, you know, is, is very compelling. And again, we don't see the same kind of um, market factors that you see on the consumer internet side. So it's a, it's a, it's a case, I think, of buyer beware on the, on the consumer internet side. Yeah, just on, on the idea there of the balance of, between deci- mm-hmm. deciding your monetization mm-hmm. strategy, mm-hmm. either sort of concurrently mm-hmm. or after the uh, a product has been, uh, has been realized. Do you see evidence of some companies looking to monetize too quickly? Um, I think uh, working out the go-to-market strategy and getting some real case studies uh, and uh, ROIs, you know, where they can actually show a customer has made a return on the investment by purchasing their product or technology, that's really, really critical and important. Um, and I would caution uh, young companies to figure that out as best they can or get some milestones that at least point them in the right direction. Um, I think, you know, running too fast and worrying about... Uh, you know, user adoption and monetization later is a high risk, high risk capital strategy. I mean, I think if you are very good at fundraising and you can pull it off, great. But I think um, spending more time on getting the customer fit right, getting pilots, getting uh, uh, um, uh, proof of concepts approved within accounts and with good customer strong, you know, tier one names that reference well. Um, whilst it's t- time consuming you know you're talking about cycles up to 6 to 18 months for some of those uh, projects but in the longer term means that the companies 
battle tested its product market fit and its customer fit and what its real value add is and they can actually scale that much quicker then from there on in and they can have really strong proof points for investors to show uh, you know what their what their product has done and have referenceable customers so so I would always urge uh, companies not to it's not that I would urge them to go slow I would urge them to get that right um, I would equally urge companies you know you have to move fast and the pace of change is so fast in the US and in, in, in China that Irish companies you know do not have the luxury of sitting back and waiting two or three years for things to work to see what, what works so you've got to make some progress so when I say run fast I, I mean more in terms of getting that go to market customer product fit right uh, one of the great things about sort of uh, the technology culture, if you will, uh, that we have with startups mm-hmm. now is that it's okay to fail, fail yeah. early, fail yeah. often yeah. Uh, as required. Um, but do we sort of the upside of this is that we see people are much more in willing to invest. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the climate that we're in now. But um, do you see the case where people will invest in companies, they'll get their seed money, and then the hard part is not so much getting your initial seed money, mm-hmm. But getting your your Series A yeah. funding, yeah, absolutely. I mean, getting the seed is a, is a great milestone. But you know, once you've got that, really, what you got to work out is how do I make sure that I get this capital turned into real value add that it can get me along the journey of the key milestones I need to, and evidence and fact pattern that I need to show the Series A guy, so that I I have the customer adoption, I have a few wins, I have you know the product uh, tested in the marketplace, and it's you know it's 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 stable, it's robust, and. Um, and that's the really, really difficult point um, uh, for companies to, to, to do. So, so I think, um, you know, we see this, what they call the Series A crunch in, in the U.S. And, in, in, and to a lesser extent, I think, here in Ireland. And it's because, you know, I'm not saying the seed stage is, or is easier. It's not. But it's a much lower bet. I mean, seed investors, angel investors, you know, they're putting small amounts of money to see does something fly. Uh, but then when it comes to putting serious amounts of capital in, in place to scale up, at that point in time, risk return, risks are still very high. Investors need high, high returns. Um, so only the guys that really hit a high bar, a high bar of achievement of milestones, uh, will get funded. And so if you get seed money and you don't progress along that line to Towards the Series A, and it's not like a point in time, but have evidenceable, you know, milestones that you can show to an investor and have built out maybe some of the team and have a couple of customer wins. It's going to be a challenge to raise the the, the Series A uh, for sure. Uh, the keynote today was actually given by the uh, Minister for Finance, Michael Noonan. Do you think there is a, a real significance to that selection of minister as opposed to maybe having the Minister for Education or the Minister for uh, Training and Skills? Um, I think, you know, there's a relevance for all of, um, you know, for Minister of Finance, Enterprise, uh, Jobs, Education, they all have quite significant strategic input, I think, into Ireland, the country, as we now move towards a much more sustainable uh, uh, platform for growth for Irish industry, for Indigenous Irish industry. So I think having the Minister of Finance is actually hugely relevant and I'll tell you why. I think if you look at what they have done from a strategic point of view in, first of all, stabilising the country so that we can actually start you know, again getting investment but second of all, 
for the indigenous guys, which is where I'm most uh, uh, dedicated and interested. You know, we now have the ICIF, the Irish Strategic Investment Fund, which is ultimately responsible to the Minister for Finance. So Minister of Finance has actually, they've taken quite a number of, you know, uh, innovative strategies. The only time will tell how they're going to work out, but at least they've made those decisions. So the backdrop now for Irish industry, having a 7.7 billion fund that's going to invest directly. There are also investors in a lot of funds uh, that are actually deploying capital to Irish industry as well. So I think um, huge relevance and I think they have a huge role to play and I think it's actually the interaction between public uh, and private, uh, you know, this collective approach, joining the dots, which we have been historically poor at doing in Ireland, leveraging all our resources, both within the state and within the private sector, is actually how we will build the right ecosystem uh, for entrepreneurs to to flourish. So it isn't going to be just... um, you know, guys from industry that are going to do this. The state is really, really important because I don't believe the state actually creates individual jobs, but I do believe that the state creates the environment and the mood music and the background that enables, you know, confidence and enables investors to invest with confidence that, you know, for the long term, Ireland is going to be a very stable, uh, profitable place for them to, you know, make key decisions and put significant amounts of infrastructure and investment into. So, so actually, I think for IT, LG. It was a great win for them to get uh, the minister here, and I think it reflects well also on ITLG that they have this model, which is, you know, global model of connecting the global Irish, connecting Silicon Valley with Ireland, and really it's about getting Ireland a place in that global order where we're connected to those clusters of both capital and innovation. We learn from them, we build our networks, and that we use our diaspora and we use our every single little edge that we have we need to use to to grow Irish industry uh, of course when we're talking about the links between uh, Ireland and uh, and the valley which are which yeah. are pretty strong at this stage um, a lot of your work is on the the opposite side if you will in China is China that still the great new frontier or are Irish com- companies looking at the valley and going that's where we want to play um, I think the valley obviously has, you know, we have a long history. Uh, and in Atlantic Bridge, you know, we called ourselves Atlantic Bridge for crossing the, 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 the Atlantic to the U.S. principally initially. Uh, and that valley hub is very, very important. We have offices and people there. And, and that's critical because all the buyers are there and most of the capital is there. 90% of all of the capital in VC goes into one zip code and it's Sandhill Road in, in California in Silicon Valley. So I think very, very important. But equally what we have is the emergence of a new generation of Chinese companies, um, uh, Chinese internet companies, Chinese tech companies that have built up very successfully in China over the last principally five, ten years um, and are now looking westward and are looking um, to acquire companies, partner with companies, acquire technologies, acquire market share, build market share. Um, And I think that's the opportunity for Irish companies. I think also for Irish companies to scale in China is a huge opportunity. And I think it's a long-term project. It is not an easy market. It's a very, very different market. It's a very lucrative market, but it's a market that requires, you know, a lot of respect, a lot of knowledge and companies to take their time uh, to find uh, the right partner because just the cultural language and business cultures are just so so different Um, but if you can overcome them uh, just the size of that market and the opportunities that it throws up are are really phenomenal for Irish industry so I'd say we're at the early part of the curve here and that this is a 10-20 year play uh, much similar to what we did in Ireland on the FDI side with the US corporates you know 20 years ago attracting them to, to, to Ireland in the first place so we've got to think long term.
So uh, do you think Irish businesses don't at the moment have the toolkit to make a, to be successful in China? Do you think it's a it's a process where people will learn mm. how to do business and will make the connections mm. over, over a longer period mm. of time? Well, we're fast learners, the Irish, so I think we, we are learning, but we're at the very early stages of, of that uh, learning curve. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, role models and case studies and other successful Irish companies in China, mainly initially on the food side, it has been, um, are very important reference cases for other Irish companies and other Irish entrepreneurs. I think also building the links between Chinese entrepreneurs and Irish entrepreneurs, which we do in the China Ireland Fund, and providing that linkage and having a local partner. That's all really, really important in China. So I think we're at the beginning of it. I mean, the China-Ireland Fund is the first time uh, that the Irish government and the Chinese government have come together in a bilateral fund to focus on investing in Irish companies that will scale in China. So I think uh, as, a, as a case study in itself, the successes that come out of that are going to be very informative for, for other companies and blazing the way, I suppose, at the trail. Um, you have companies like PCH, Irish company, hugely successful in, in, in China. Um, and I think um, we'll have more case studies like that. And that will be to the advantage of, of companies that want to look at China. Excellent. Thank you very much, Elaine. Thank you. Thank you very much. Pleasure to speak with you. And that was Elaine Coughlin of Atlantic Bridge Capital talking to Niall Kitson on the floor of the Global Tech Summit, which happened in DCU last week. This is Tech Central, your weekly tech podcast from Ireland's techcentral.ie. Now, moving away from the Global Tech Summit, but very, very much keeping on a global scale is another massive Irish success story, this time in the world of hospitals. Recently, I spoke with Andrew Murphy, who is with Sluncha Healthcare, to find out if we could really be seeing doctors with iPads in hospitals in the next five years or so. But first, I asked him about Sluncha Healthcare and who they are and where they sit in the health service here in Ireland and globally. So uh, we're eight years old, uh, and initially, uh, when we started, uh, we provided software that ensured that hospitals got paid for treating private patients. So we moved on from that into uh, providing software to take the patient chart electronic. Um, and that's what we're, we're exporting worldwide now. Is That's our main main offering. So when you say that the, the patient's chart, is this essentially every patient's, all, all their essential details and how they're being treated and, and, and what's being done to them and the whole thing? Yeah, if you think of where, uh, if a patient goes into a hospital today, Invariably, there'll be a big folder or chart with all their medical information through previous episodes uh, for that particular hospital. Yet, if they go into another hospital or they've had treatment there, there's a separate chart there for them as well. Um, so what, what, what we do is we move all of that electronic in a way that mimics, I guess, the, the, the chart that doctors and nurses are used to using, but they access it on tablets. And uh, because... Uh, the more sites we have, we can exchange that information then across multiple facilities and we would see certainly within the next 18 months that patients would have real-time access to that themselves and can in fact augment that medical record. And if they go to um, uh, a hospital in Timbuktu, that they would be able to show their own chart to that doctor or whatever as well. So we would see a move from rather than it being just solely about uh, software for the hospital 
that it becomes much more about the patient and there's patient management and, and access to that and that the patient can take more control over the medical record. Every time you, you change a system or, you know, the way something has been done for years, people kind of yeah. complain. What, what, what kind of reaction are you getting from, from, you know, the staff and the nurses and the doctor? Do they find it more convenient? Are they thinking, wow, paperless, that's good for the environment? Or do they even care? Well, the environment doesn't really come into it. Uh, and uh, what we've, what we've, what we've all seen when, when uh, systems try to bring in uh, big software systems or big changes, that there, there can be massive resistance and it can result in uh, a reduction in performance rather than an improvement. So what we uh, tried to do with, with Vitro was to bring in something that was so familiar by mimicking their own chart. So we don't like, you know, say, forget what you do. This is how our software works. We go in and we absorb, I guess, how they currently work with their current chart and our software mimics the look of their own chart. So that makes that that change issue much smaller. And it means that from a doctor and a nurse's point of view, there's virtually no learning required to take that step from paper to electronic. And that's the key thing we've focused on. So typically, we kind of say, well, you know what? If my three-year-old can pick up an iPad and play around with it, well, it should be as easy for a nurse or doctor to make the transition from paper to electronic. And the software should be designed to be that intuitive that it is that easy. So typically, what we see is uh, it's very much embraced because people can see, actually, it doesn't add any more hassle, but there's lots of benefits from reduction in clinical risk by automated alerts to actually being able to see anything relevant to the patient at any one time. There's multiple stakeholders in the patient's care. And, you know, if it's in paper, it's only in one place at any one time. There's risk that bits of paper fall out of a chart. There's, there's risks that they're getting filed into another patient's chart. So there's huge risk with paper, and I think most clinicians see that. So if you take away that risk, but you don't add to the hassle, you get a lot of people on board very quickly. So is this going to be a system that is going to be available in every single medical establishment in the, in, in the country, and perhaps even worldwide? Or is it something uh, exclusive to Slauncher Healthcare? Our approach... Uh, from what we can see around the world, it is quite unique. Um, we are receiving a lot of adoption in Australia, across Australia, Middle East. We've uh, recently opened up in Brazil, uh, and we're doing some deals in Eastern Europe and Southern Africa. It's only in the last while that we started talking to our Irish clients who would be more used to us from the health insurance claim system. Uh, but we're getting a lot of uh, excitement uh, from our uh, from Irish hospitals, and certainly, if I had my way, uh, it, it would be a, a, a system that would um, affect the lives of every patient in in in, in, the, uh, in the in this country. Um, you, you can never guarantee um, that everybody will be aligned, but um, from our point of view, it's going to be available, uh, and it's whether. Uh, for the Irish health system um, 
take us up on this is, is another question. Well, it is terrific to hear, you know, about a, a new service and a new tech service that actually is, as, as you say, I mean, it's, it, that, that there is nothing but good things in that for, for patients and also for the doctors and the nurses who are using the system. And it's also great to see your company uh, having this, you know, tech service that's originating here in Ireland and is being a success worldwide. Andrew Murphy, CEO of Sluncha Healthcare, thanks for bringing us up to date. Thanks, Marion. Best of luck. That's it from our Tech Radio show for today. Thank you so much for listening as always. Remember, you can get hourly updates on tech news along with daily newsletters from techcentral.ie as well as our weekly Tech Radio show online and every Friday at 6pm on DAB Digital Radio with RTE Radio 1 Extra. Until next time, from myself, Dusty Rhodes and from Nala Kitson doing all the hard work at the Global Tech Summit. Thanks for listening. Take care. Get Tech Radio. Subscribe for free with iTunes or download on demand at techcentral.ie. Tech Radio is produced by digitalaudioproductions.com. Tech Central.